you're not part of a community unless you're in the community working to make it better. And that could be rotary. It could be volunteering to teach eighth graders math after uh, work. It could be running for office. I think they're all needed and all in some ways equal or essential. Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. This is Kristen Rainey, and today I'm here with Chris Mell, who has spent three decades both working professionally and volunteering in public service, including most recently serving as mayor and city commissioner here in Bozeman, Montana. Chris, thanks for taking the time to be here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So to share some context with listeners who don't live in Bozeman, what would you say are three of the biggest challenges the city faced during your tenure as mayor? Uh, um, but it's really just one, three times growth, uh, <laughs> which is a way of saying change. College towns across the West grew dramatically, and Bozeman was certainly in that category. Will you summarize the housing challenges that are happening here? University towns, uh, as well as retail hubs, areas that people come in to shop uh, from around the area, and recreation hubs, all have housing challenges, and Bozeman's blessed to be all three. And so housing has been an issue here forever, but it's been especially acute and frustrating in the last three to five years. You shared with me a really interesting diagram called the land use trilemma that illustrates three options for cities facing growth. Will you briefly share what that diagram is all about? Sure. We, we can planning walk out for a second. Basically, if, if you want to con, uh, control housing prices with a goal, uh, you're faced with the, the issue of uh, it's hard to maintain neighborhood character uh, in the sense of changing neighborhoods where people live, they've invested in. And second, it it also threatens the idea of sprawl. Houston, for example, has embraced the two-hour commute, which has lowered their average housing prices over a you know four-hour driving area because they drive so far, which is bad for the environment, bad socially, economically. And so in a sense, it's it's hard to do all three. How do you have low housing prices but not affect neighborhood character and not sprawl? And the danger is you'll have none of the three. Housing will still go up. You'll still change the neighborhoods, not that the people that live there originally are pretty upset, and you'll still sprawl. And so that's a challenge. Bozeman, Bend, uh, Bellingham, you name it, people are facing it across the West. I think many people might be familiar with the acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard, protesting development in their vicinity. What is YIMBY? Y-I-M-B-Y. That's something that's uh, been around for a long time, but it's come into vogue again the last couple of years, especially in California. And, and the question there is that if we're going to maintain our larger community character, we have to accept that more housing probably is needed in some areas that are pretty low density right now in terms of uh, for urban areas. And so they're saying 
I want more housing because it will allow us to continue to have that diversity of character in our community that pipe fitters, as well as academics, as well as a lawyer, all can live in the same neighborhood or at least in the same community. And so they're saying, yes, I want to have some change to that neighborhood character around me because I see a long-term greater good uh, than saying no, absolutely. And it's, it's always a balance between them. And you'd mentioned some other regions. You mentioned, you know, Bend, Oregon as another place experiencing some of these challenges. Of course, these are not unique to Bozeman. You shared an interesting article about Lafayette, California, a small affluent area outside San Francisco, where a 315-unit apartment complex has been highly controversial for many years and looks like it was finally approved. Where else across the U.S. do you see some of these uh, housing crunches? Well, as I mentioned, just about any university town and resort areas, and especially with COVID, I think a a thumb that a lot of us use for explanation is that COVID accelerated many, many things, whether it's remote working, but also accelerated the housing crisis. Uh, Fewer workers available to build housing in terms of supply and demand, but also uh, companies realizing that they could have their employees work anywhere. And so that live-work balance made Bend, Bozeman, Durango, Montana, Santa Fe, New Mexico, but even a Champaign, Illinois uh, college town in the Midwest, quite popular. Why deal with a two-hour commute in Houston when you can work from your home in Bozeman? My wife, uh, ties, uh, goes out and to the outdoors, worked for many years for a San Francisco firm. Uh, but the price here is still significantly lower than the Bay Area. Uh, the, the crime is lower. The schools are better. The pay was the same, and our commute to a trailhead is 10 minutes rather than three and a half hours. So why why wouldn't people move for quality of life? I know you hadn't anticipated running for office. How did you end up doing that? (laughs) Well, uh, um, just a quick background. I worked for about 15 years in Washington, D.C., and then moved to Bozeman uh, because I could. Uh, I stayed in Washington too long. I encourage people to go there. It's an incredible learning curve, but I moved here in uh, the summer of 01. And not surprisingly said, I am never going to be involved in politics again. And a couple of years later, I ended up raising money for a new library in town, which compared to raising money for politicians is quite easy. The legacy, I think towns are often measured by the quality of their library. You know, what have they invested in learning and that central community area of culture and arts and and social gathering. And so from that, I uh, I was asked to be on the planning board. And then on the planning board, I realized Bozeman is dynamic. It's changing. I want to be part of the community. Perhaps I should run for office and try and uh, have some say that way, along with many others that have influence in the community. It's interesting talking about the library. Uh, In episode three, uh, we had another Bozeman resident Rory Martin, who, who said similar things about how, you know, one of the first things he looks for when he's deciding to live somewhere is just the, the caliber of the library. And I have to say, especially, you know, being so fortunate to live so so close to it, I can literally cartwheel to the library. I've enjoyed using it so much and um, have gotten back into borrowing books and actually got back into fiction. And I just really appreciate that as an amazing resource. So thanks for all that you've you've done to to make the library what it is today. Was that, like anything, many hands make uh, light work. And so it was thousands and thousands of people together. I just happened, I ended up being at the head of the library foundation when it was done. And so and sometimes it's life isn't fair. The ending uh, had more prominence, shall we say, than the beginning. But so many people worked on that. Uh, like you said, it, those things don't happen without a community backing and community effort and many years of uh, determined work by hundreds of people. And when you initially went to D.C. for work, you had dropped out of Dartmouth at that time. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, I, I was going 
uh, to Dartmouth and I was, um, you know, a funny story. I, I actually studied overseas and I came back and um, being a young student had forgotten to secure housing, which is a problem in a small town in New Hampshire. And the college graciously put me in with three upperclassmen. Uh, I was a sophomore and I wanted to then go to Washington for a semester. And one of them had uh, done that previously and suggested that I work for a congressman who, who then being Washington pulled strings and got me in to be an intern there. And that ended the internship and they had an opening on staff. And I decided I would rather do that than go back to school. Uh, it was just so exciting to be in Washington uh, and to enjoy it. It was the, the late 80s, just to, to de- actually the mid 80s to date myself even more. And why not? Uh, eventually, I went back and did get a degree. I actually studied how you win the presidential nomination as a senior fellow there, along with uh, Kristen Gillibrand, who's the senator from uh, New York. She studied the, the Dalai Lama. I think she got the better deal. But uh, the school was incredibly gracious to me for that opportunity. So in a sense, you you extended the, this. Don't all sophomores spend uh, you know a semester off campus? You sort of essentially extended your sophomore. Uh, yeah, but by the time I got to DC, I was a junior. But yeah, your your knowledge of Dartmouth may exceed mine if I'm not careful. But you are correct. You're <laughs> on the quarter system, and you're encouraged to um, to leave partly because they only have so much housing, as we mentioned before. <laughs> Uh, but they also then ask you to be there in the summer of your sophomore year. Uh, and so the idea is go somewhere else. Um, and, and I must say, it's a, it's a pretty good system for studying overseas or going to Washington. Or A lot of my friends uh, volunteered. You know, they worked for nonprofits for three to six months. Uh, and it really, I think, helped them. And obviously, it was a you know, free labor supply for the nonprofits. So it's a, it's a good system if you can work it out. Absolutely. And where did you go overseas? Germany. Uh, my last name means, uh, it's very exciting, it means baking flour in German. <laughs> and so uh, I knew some German and studied in Mainz and in Berlin in Germany. Great, great time. Uh, uh, and still, you know, I'm addicted to watching Bundesliga uh, Fußball uh, Saturday morning. So there's some legacies there as well. Nice. I know you've called yourself a professionally a Swiss army knife. What did you mean by that? My job is often to help other people. I think I'm, a, you know, another crass way to say it would be to be an enabler. You know, as a congressional staff, I was the press secretary for many years. For example, is helping that person get their word out, answer questions from the media and the public, but also tell folks what they're doing. And when I moved here, I worked for the Wilderness Society, and again, was other smarter people were doing a lot of the work, and I helped them communicate to local officials, towns, what's going on. And then I worked at Headwaters Economics, which is a, a Bozeman-based economic research group, mostly on rural economic development. And again, they all had PhDs in economics, which I do not have, but I help them talk to county commissioners, uh, understand how policy works in Helena or, or DC or any state capital, things like that. So my, my job is in a sense as a catalyst would be a more positive way to say it. I think an enabler would be more the political way to say it, but the, the result hopefully is the same. Better things happen. Uh, because people are able to communicate better, get things done, uh, work for those communities. And what ultimately inspired you to uh, serve as commissioner? Well, growing up, my, my father was a minister and my mother a nurse, and they made it very clear as long as I can remember that you're not part of a community unless you're in the community working to make it better. And that could be rotary. Uh, it could be volunteering to teach eighth graders math after uh, work. Uh, it could be running for office. I think they're all needed and all in some ways equal or essential to going. So uh, in Washington, for example, I was the person teaching eighth graders math. That's about as far as I could get without still be comfortable to tell the student, no, I'm pretty sure that's correct. You know, after that, it got a little uh, more dicey. And when I moved here, like I said, it was 
involved in the library. I was involved in Rotary, but decided running for office was the way I could do it. I, in D.C., I learned that I can sit through a four-hour public meeting. That's not something everyone wants to do or should do. Some people do that. Some people do the other volunteer activities, like I said, and together you have a better community. You'd already been living in Bozeman for nine years when you took on the role. What initially brought you here? Um, like I said, because I could. One thing about working, and I worked on the House side entirely when I was in Washington, D.C., is that they have elections every two years. And I'm embarrassed to admit it took me five years to realize that I could take the odd years off and travel. And as long as I was there in the even numbered years, they would rehire me to do work, but also for the, and then I would stop, not be on the public payroll for the election uh, part of it. And in those odd years, I was always traveling to the wilderness, whether it was Alaska, went to Southeast Asia, I drove across the country several times, went to Australia once. And so I saw a job opportunity in 2001 at the Wilderness Society, promptly put it aside and went to the Southwest to, for three months. And when I came back, the job was still posted. And I thought, they, I don't know much about the environment, but they're clearly desperate. So I'll take a chance at that. And I was single. Um, so it was a good time to move uh, to Bozeman, Montana. And when when you come out here, it's amazing, as you know. It, it's just, there are many towns across the West that have similar landscapes. But why wouldn't you live here from the point of view of what I like to do? What other towns were in the short list when you did make that leap to move to Bozeman? Uh, Durango, um, Bend, and Missoula. Uh, although I started with Bozeman and because they ended up offering me a job that the list didn't really fully get explored. I had gone through all those towns uh, and many others while traveling. I guess Bishop, California was on there uh, as well. Uh, and so they were all things that I was interested in. It was just the Washington Post before classifieds died had that ad from the Wilderness Society about Bozeman. So I started and was fortunate enough to end there. But if it hadn't worked there, I certainly would have been looking in those other towns as well. They're all great communities. And the adventure to Alaska you mentioned earlier, is it true you drove there? Yes. We left in April and came back on, because my dad is a minister, we came back on December 24th, uh, just barely, but made that uh, 11 o'clock service. It was an incredible time friend at the time, her parents gave us a Toyota uh, station wagon. We had two mounted tires, not just spare tires, but already mounted if we needed to replace them. And somehow we never did. We broke everything else on the trip, uh, but not did not break the tires. It was a great, great trip. I recommend it to anyone. If you can find whether a month or three months or even three weeks, just do it. Did you stay put in a couple of amazing spots or were you on the move pretty much the whole time? Pretty much on the move. We made the effort to drive all the way to Yellowknife, which is on the Great Slave Lake. And um, that was two days of dirt road driving. And so when we got there, we did stay there for a week. Uh, we also drove out. Uh, so I think it was just to re recoup. But otherwise, it was never more than a day or two. Uh, we also learned in these small Canadian towns, for example, we broke a window was broken. Passive voice, a stone from a passing car broke a a side window that you needed to call ahead and say, we'll be there in two weeks. Can you order the part now so that it can be delivered? This is a you know, town of 3,000. We would roll in and they all had auto repair, but none of them had that kind of thing on stock. And so you, you had to have some planning. Um, but other than that, you know, for supplies and whatnot, or that specific case, we, we try not to say we'll be here at a certain time. Just go where we could. Will you please share with us a brief Local Politics 101 lesson? What, for example, is the difference between city commissioner and mayor? It really depends on the community you're in. In Missoula, just to take another college town in Montana, they have a strong mayor. And so the mayor is directly elected uh, as mayor. Whereas in Bozeman, we have a city manager system, which is also the case, for example, in, in Texas by law requires 
all communities in Texas to have a city manager system from uh, big like Houston or Dallas down to a tiny little town uh, as well. And that means that the commission hires the city manager, but the city manager makes the decision about hiring the police officer, the planning director, the parks and rec director, and things like that. And so it, it, it really depends where you live. In small communities like Bozeman, we're just north of 50,000 now. I think the real takeaway is that you get a hold of your local officials. You're going to see them in Albertsons. You're going to see them at the soccer game with their kids and your kids. Uh, talk to them. You know, Get to know them. They want to hear from you. And you have an enormous opportunity to really talk to them. It was I was prepared for a landslide of public comment when I got elected. And there were a lot of comments, but I had come from a congressional world where you're just inundated with comment all the time. And I, and I was surprised at um, how few people picked up the phone. And, and a lot of the effort then became of how do I increase my going out in the community to make up for that? In a sense, to not hear just from your friends or the you know, every community has 100 people who are gadflies or their job depends on it, who contact you all the time. And so how do you get those raw voices? And I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges right now across communities, whether you have a strong mayor, a city manager or another system is getting to the public early so they know what's going on and breaking through that noise because they have so much else going on in their lives. So when a mayor is elected in Bozeman, they first serve two years as city commissioner. Is that correct? Yeah. And this is unique. I don't want to, I'll explain it, but I don't know of many other communities that have this. In a sense, it used to be whoever got the most votes was mayor. Uh, And then as we grew, we realized that while some people had the time to be a commissioner, but did not want to be mayor, either because of the prominence of it. The mayor runs the meetings. Uh, more people call the mayor than a commissioner, even though we uh, there are five commissioners and they all have the same number of votes. One, you know, uh, on issues, they just the mayor gets more attention. And so they changed it. You would be directly elected as mayor, but they put in a caveat that you would serve two years as deputy mayor and then two years as mayor. And it's two reasons. Uh, One is training wheels. If you've been working as an accountant somewhere and decide you want to be in public office, you might, Robert's rules, running a meeting, uh, the budget of the city is different. Learn how that works before you become mayor. Uh, And the second is actually pretty small C conservative. You cannot succeed yourself as mayor. You know, even if you are mayor, um, for example, uh, Cindy Andrus took a break between being mayor again. Jeff Krause, who was mayor, I think three times, was always a break in between when he was mayor. Uh, and that allows other people to be mayor and it breaks up that continuity. We won't have a, a mayor daily of Chicago in Bozeman under this system because it will always be diversified uh, in terms of who's mayor. And that, uh, I, I think, is a good thing for our, our size, making sure that there's that change in leadership uh, in that rotation. And in terms of defining weak mayor versus strong mayor, which is different in different places. Is that strictly that definition related to someone being elected directly to be mayor and therefore being the strong mayor? Or is it about it being a full-time role as strong mayor and a part-time role as weak mayor? What what, what exactly does it mean? And it is an expression. It's not, uh, it means directly elected, um, but you could be directly elected and be very consensus-based, which most mayors are. Uh, and be sharing, folks might not even know, in a sense. And then you can have uh, mayors who, like uh, Mayor Daly, that we mentioned, who are notorious for having been mayor for a long time and, and establishing it. It's meant to be where the authority across the board lies. And so the mayor in Bozeman is one of five, runs the meetings uh, and has some persuasive power because they have that title. But otherwise, they are the same as any commissioner. In fact, I was two terms as a commissioner. 
in some ways got more done as a commissioner than did as mayor. So there was more time to focus on that. The pay in Bozeman is not full-time pay. Uh, the Missoula mayor, for example, is paid a salary that you could live on that, and, and he does. And he's been mayor for a number of terms. Uh, and again, he's a very good mayor. Uh, but the commissioners there are not paid enough to also be full-time. And so the pay in a growing community is increasingly become an issue because you have so many, Bozeman, for example, so much change going on, uh, so many difficult issues like COVID or growth that we talked about, that there's a danger that you only have wealthy folks who can afford, you know, my spouse works, you can afford to take the, the time off, or you're retired. And in Bozeman, for example, our median age is 28 years old. Um, I don't know if you can tell I'm a little over that median age um, <laughs> by a couple of years. Uh, and so the, there's a question of representativeness. And if, if you pay more, um, the question would be, are you more likely to get more people to say, you know what, I'm thinking about doing that. I like my job uh, but at the hardware store, but I really want to be mayor because I want to get X or Y done, or I just want to give back to my community. And this way you can do it without saying to your spouse, you know, you have to work all the time or because um, these uh, jobs entail enormous number of public meetings, things like that. You're just not there for your family as much as you'd like to be. And so right now, uh, for example, I don't think we have any commissioners that have young kids. And we haven't for a long time, and not surprisingly. Uh, just like one of many members of Congress, even though it pays for young kids, because it, it just, but it eliminates certain segments of the community, which are very strong and important to any community, whether it's Durango, Bozeman, or Bend, to have. So it... it but if you're Haver uh, and you're not growing and you're about 13,000 people, maybe the system of a, a city manager to, to do things where you just check in occasionally makes more sense. You know, it really depends on the community. I know in a town like Bozeman, it's it's pretty difficult to live off of $1,000 a month, which I understand is the income for the role of mayor. I know you had to keep your full-time job with Headwaters while you were serving as mayor. What was a typical week like or day like even in terms of trying to fit it all in? Did you have city-related meetings you know, at lunchtime at 7 a.m. in the morning? How were you able to hold both roles at the same time? Well, the danger is always that you'll end up doing neither as well as you would like. <laughs> yeah. And so the first key is that you know, be, when I was still at the Wilderness Society, before I moved over to Headwaters, I said, you know, I'm probably going to run for office. And let's talk about that before I start, because I don't want to surprise you, you know, as one of your employees, you deserve to get a lot of time. And then you do uh, have to do exactly what you said. You have to find out ways to mix it in. And it also means you just miss some meetings you wish you could have gone to. And for me, it, it always ended up to be hard choices um, between the two. And, and then you have to have an understanding family. If you're married or have kids, you know, how do they possibly put up with that? But I don't think you should run for office without having those conversations. So in a sense, it, you have to preload it as much as you can. And then it, you still leave things on the table. I think anyone in their job, you know, from welder to lawyer and everything in between knows that, you know, if they had more time, they would have been able to do more. And some of that's just economics. You can't spend, as a plumber, all of your time at one house checking everything. You fix something, you move on. Uh, the same is true in elect, elected official. You can't spend all your time learning about how streets are made. You also have to look at parks, the library, and so on. And so it's, it's always a balance. This just adds one more, in a sense, fulcrum or balancing point to that larger picture. Chris, you mentioned Missoula earlier. So Missoula having a full-time mayor, is it just simply that they have a larger population there of 77,000 compared to Bozeman's roughly 53,000? Is that why they have a full-time position? I don't know the exact history of it. Uh, Billings, which is even bigger, about 120,000, does not have a full-time mayor. And so it, it's really community preference. And like I said, Texas 
has a city manager requirement by law. Uh, so even Dallas or Houston, uh, they have some pretty formidable mayors who have garnered national attention for good reasons, done amazing things, are working through a city manager system. So it really depends on what the community wants. I think that ability to focus on that full time, whether retire or the pay is there, just allows you to get out in that community. Uh, like I said, the, the danger is that you hear from the same 200 people all the time and you need to go out and, and break through and hear that unvarnished voice. It, it may be pretty hard, you know, some criticism or whatnot, but that's important. And the second thing is to trust in government, whether especially at the federal level, but also state uh, and the least local, but it's declining local too, is dropping. And, and one of the few ways you're going to modify that, so to speak, is to go out and be heard and, and show that you're listening so that when you make those decisions, you have some reservoir there to move on. Let's take that trilemma that we talked about. You know, if, if you're going to tackle housing prices, somebody's going to be upset because you may have voted to increase density in a neighborhood that's been at a certain level of, you know, single homes for a long time. And now there can be duplexes or small apartments. Some people are going to be happy about that. And some people are going to be pretty upset. And if you're out there listening and talking to people and also saying, here's what I think the vision for our community should be, you have a much better chance of getting past that and moving forward as a community uh, than if you're never there and things are a surprise to folks and they feel that their local officials aren't approachable, they're just making decisions from the dais. I don't want to ramble too much, but I don't think I appreciate enough having been a staffer for Congress and an elected official, how intimidating the dais could be. To me, I knew elected officials. I saw them good and bad. They're mostly good, you know, people who really care about their community. But if you come to a public meeting for the first time and people are they're elevated so they can see everyone and you're asked to speak and you're limited in how long you can speak and 10 other people are speaking and they all seem clever and smart, it's it can be exceedingly intimidating and also frustrating. You know, just I only had a short amount of time to explain what's going to happen you know, two blocks from my house. That's really important. You see that in school boards right now. A lot of parents frustrated, like, should schools close? Should masks be mandated? Whatnot. You know, whether you agree with the position or not, I, I, you certainly can empathize with the frustration. And like, the school board wants to hear from all 50 people who showed up. They can't let them all talk for an hour. And so they ask them to limit their comments. And then they feel like, I have three minutes to explain what I think is vital to my kid. And that's just, regardless of what side you're on, and multiple, usually there are four or five points of view, it can be exceedingly frustrating. And so, Having that ability as school board or a commissioner and local government to get out into the community and build some of those relationships in advance, I think builds in a shock absorber or some asbestos, in a sense, from the heat of those very emotional but important decisions to come. Do you think it's just a matter of time before Bozeman does have a full-time mayor position? One of the keys is you, you work with the system you have. I was pretty open about saying we should think about it. If you look at my predecessors, the previous two were basically, one of them was on some boards, but mostly retired. And the previous one was fully retired. So they found the time. I, I think you would look at somehow enabling all five. I'm not sure the Missoula is the answer. Missoula also has, I think, 13 commissioners. I mean, that they've gone overboard, I would say, uh, on that because of their meetings notoriously go to 2 a.m., uh, they they have a hard time corralling folks. Uh, the public has lost touch, can't keep track of who the 13 commissioners are. And so one of the questions I would have is, can you somehow make it easier for all five of the elected officials in Bozeman to have more time in the community? Uh, another question also would be wards as we grow. Uh, for a while there, um, four of the five commissioners, when I first were elected, were within a, a professional baseball player's you know throw within each other. 
even though they represented a community of then about 40,000 people, they all lived in the same neighborhood. And wards would allow some of that to change. We have fast growing parts of town, especially in the north and west and growing in the south and west part of town that uh, don't see representation. And it would be great to make sure that somebody from that area was represented because those, those are traditionally young families. You know, a couple of kids, both in their 30s, much different viewpoint or needs than, say, the 65 and older folks who live in the more centralized, older part of town. And you want that diversity and representation. I'd love to come back to a, a comment you made earlier that sometimes you feel like you got more accomplished as city commissioner than as mayor. Can you share a little bit more? Well, I, I think the key is, um, you know, in a, the political way, the Washington way would answer that is every day you wake up, you have 20 percent of the vote. And if you're not responsible for running the meeting, you might have some more time to work on specific projects. And we had mayors who I would go to and say, look, I, uh, for example, we did a parks district, which I spearheaded as a commissioner. So I think, and you would go to the mayor and say, look, this is a, you have projects, I have projects, this is one I want to work on. Is that okay with you? And basically not ensure their vote, but sure their blessing that they would give it a hearing, you know, let people learn more and decide about it. And then you could put your time into that. And you really, you hoped for unanimity, but you would only needed two others to get over the 50% threshold. And so you could put your time into that instead of time going to meetings or doing the TV interviews and whatnot. So in a sense, there was more time, in a sense, being mayor is a project in itself. And so you had an opportunity to work on those. So the, the Parks District, which I think was in uh, 2011, and 12 was one that we, we took on when we were without a parks director. And so I was, in, in a sense, able to make a lot of that case of that, along with a local group called uh, GVLT, Gallatin uh, Valley Land Trust, Trust for Public Land and others. And I wouldn't have had that time if I was mayor to, to, in a sense, make those relationships and pursue that. In September of 2020, you resigned from your position as mayor of Bozeman. Would you be willing to share what happened? Well, it, <laughs> I'm not sure we... At the time, I, I think that the short answer is that it was uh, involved with the library planning board, as I said, and then the city involved with the city for about 15 years and got an enormous amount done. And I'm very proud of that, whether the library, the, the park, we both parks district, parks bonds, a number of changes to impact fees, which is an important way of how the city raises money. But I probably, you know, in terms of owning some of it, approached it as an Easterner. In a sense, a very clear, direct pathway of, to get things done. And I did start to talk to people about perhaps someday the city uh, should have a, a system where the representatives can spend more time in the community. And I think that was taken as me wanting to consolidate power for myself. In fact, it got to a point where I said, look, I'm not interested in being in office for life. I have other things. I'm going to retire. I have other things I want to do. But it was taken as that I had a hard edge, uh, which I do. And I've learned from that, certainly. And I think the commissioners were much more reliant on staff to be on, you know, to be somewhat critical of my fellow commissioners. I, I, you know, the five of us are elected. And while we have a city manager system, I think it's important that we continue to be that elected officials. During the summer of 20, for example, 2020, we knew we were going to get some federal money. And so we took some funds and return money to the taxpayers, something that I led and was proud of. It wasn't a lot, but it at least meant that it certainly with inflation and things, it was going down rather than just staying the same. And three months later, staff came back and said, we want to increase the money. And, and the city manager and I had a heart to heart. And I said, look, we just sent you a message that we don't want to do that. You need you know, the city commissioners for better, for worse. And the staff had good reasons why they saw needs for funding 
in the future. But I said, in this time of COVID and the uncertainty, we need to do that. And I, and I think there was a question there of who really was calling the shots or suggesting it. And the, the staff memo did not reflect that just three months before we had voted to, you know, to decrease funding. They came, it was almost as if it didn't happen. And I think that's a, any example is one dot uh, on a matrix. And so it's dangerous, but it's an example of, I think the commissioners need to be in charge and have that authority. But um, at the same time, it has to be more of a, a comprehensive effort. I think I got it over my skis would be a Montana way to say it a bit in terms of trying to push things through. It worked very well for 15 years, but I also, in a sense, burned some bridges uh, in terms of getting things done. And I've learned a lot in the last two years as well. That's a pretty long answer. I hope it gets to some of what you were interested in. Thank you. If you were to share some advice uh, with someone who's who's considering serving as city commissioner or, or mayor, you know, what would you say to them if they were at the sort of very beginning of that journey in terms of uh, advice of how to be as effective as possible in a role like that? Right. Well, let me split it in half. First, I would say definitely think about it. It's incredibly rewarding. Um, the second thing I, I would say as part of the first half is, you know, don't do it without talking to your employer, to your friends, and especially your family. You know, understand it's a four-year commitment. Some of it's entirely predictable and some of it's not. Uh, in terms of, of getting in, I would say that it doesn't matter why you want to run. You know, in a sense, I don't want people who just agree with me always to run, but to be involved uh, and make sure that they're ready, though, that even if they have two or three important issues, the city's going to deal with 100 issues over the next year. And so are they, you know, I made a joke before about willing to sit through long meetings. Understand that a lot of things that you have no control over or less interest in are going to be uh, not only coming up week after week, but incredibly important to other people. And so don't lose sight of your vision or your goal. I want to do X if I'm elected, but understand that that's at most five to 6% of your time. And the other 95% is important for the city to function, but incredibly important to other people. I mean, we spent an enormous amount of time on water as an example. You know, when you turn the tap on, people want it, the water to come. And when they, you flush, they want the water to go away. And, and there really is no margin of error. You know, if the water doesn't turn on, we've got, you know, we're in national headlines. You know, X community doesn't have reliable water. And we probably spent $100 million on water. Uh, I know more about the forced filtration system of water than I ever wanted to know for the, that the city uses its water plant. And that's not something I ever thought of when I was running for office. But it doesn't take long to realize that's vitally important. And so you have to realize that if you think you're running for office, that you're going to be talking a lot about water. Uh, you're going to be talking about a lot about capital improvements, where roads go, how big are the roads, which road do you build you know, first before the other one, because you're going to have a number of neighborhoods either wanting or not wanting roads and how you work on that. So just know that it, you're signing up for a much bigger project than just your two or three issues. And with five commissioners, it has to be that way. The U.S. Congress with 435 members of the House or even 100 senators allows for specialization. You know, um, Peter DeFazio from Oregon, for example, is retiring. I know because I'm working on passenger rail as a volunteer now. That's all he does is, you know, mass infrastructure. Uh, and he's quite good at it. And know, he and his staff know a lot about it. That's not available to a commissioner in uh, whether it's Billings, Bozeman, Bend, Durango. You have to be willing to talk about everything. When you think about the future of Bozeman, what do you see as two or three of the biggest opportunities for leaders here in Bozeman to have impact? We have a lot of challenges, growth being one, the relationship with the county you know, that we're surrounded by rural areas that don't always share of the ideological or thoughts on growth. And then the 
Um, right now, the state government is pretty openly hostile to communities and whether, the, you know, Great Falls, which is a pretty moderate or even conservative community or Bozeman, which is pretty progressive. But that being said, Bozeman has the resources that many communities do not to actually control its own destiny. And so I, th I think the biggest question that we're starting to get to with the community plan, which is one of the last things that I worked on, is what are we going to be when we grow up? And I use that term deliberately for two reasons. One is we just crossed the 50,000 threshold, which is very important for federal funding. Um, but growing up also implies we may have some big buildings that are bigger uh, than we've had in our past, you know, an apartment complex or another one uh, or more density. And, and that's a vision that we can control entirely on our own. Uh, and I hope that we do because we then will have the resources because of the tax base to do that in a way that is not overwhelming for citizens, something that Haver or a Glendive or a Shelby, Montana will never have because they're too small uh, or they're on a boom-bust economy related to agriculture or fossil fuels. And so there's a luxury here that doesn't exist in other communities that I think is, is something that we need to take advantage of, that we have that ability to hire good planners and staff and get the community involved so that we can make those decisions. I don't think unanimous is possible. It's not possible in Shelby or Glendive either, but we can work together to control that destiny in a way that other communities cannot. Given that U.S. efforts and global efforts to address climate change are really not aggressive enough to address our rising temperatures, do you feel like there's a real opportunity in you know, local governments to have more impact on that? Yes, I, I do. One of, and unfortunately, we have to find creative ways because we keep butting up against state law. For example, we are not allowed within reason to really exceed the standard building code that's issued at the state level, you know, because obviously transportation buildings are two of the biggest contributors to climate uh, and a community of 50,000. It's incredibly difficult to generate your own on the other side of generation to generate your own. But there are things you can do in terms of easing the code for uh, or, or providing tax credits for renewable efforts on an individual basis. We're working with Northwest Energy uh, out at the uh, where their water plant is to have a field that, um, there that's been given over to them to generate solar power to see how it works. So it, it's not as significant as people think because of the limits on city government and what we can tax or not tax in terms of influencing behavior. But it has to be done. And I think this the signal there is that you do it and lo and behold, the sun still comes up in the east the next day. And it wasn't a disaster. To me, a lot of it's getting the community to think about long-term rather than immediate. It's finding the resources to somehow explain this may cost more in the first year, but you'll have savings in the long, or we're going to give up something else for that. And that right now is just starting uh, to happen. But it it's going to be incredibly difficult just because of the way Montana government, state government limits local power. It's not very significant what the locals can do compared to what the state can do. And that that's different state by state. I saw that Bozeman has a climate plan that was adopted in December 2020, outlining strategies both for businesses and for individuals to support the goal of reaching carbon neutrality by 2050. Was that something that you were involved in while you were in office? I imagine that a project like that must have been a long time in the making. It was. Others, you know, just to be clear, others took the lead on it, uh, again, because there were five commissioners and something very important to me. We're all involved, but I, I was not on, the, for example, I was on the planning board, but I was not on the, the climate task force. Um, but uh, Missoula and Bozeman, not surprisingly, and, and Helen is catching up, have the most advanced climate plans of cities in Montana. A lot of it's still advisory because there isn't the regulatory, and some of that's not all bad. You know, incentives are, are a good thing, but 
part of it is with the limit for the city to raise taxes, how do you find the money to provide incentives? Some of it's regulatory, making it easier to build uh, solar farms or put solar on your house. And um, we have some historic districts, for example. In the last couple of years, we've changed it to make it easier to put uh, solar on your house. But we also have the fire department who came to us and said, you know, if you cover a house with solar, we may need to put a hole in the roof at some point for ventilation because of the structure of the fire. And something I would have never thought of five years ago, but the fire chief, you know, and they're working on that to make sure that there's access so that they can do that in terms of safety of residents or, or how they get into the building. But some of the smaller homes in the older part of town, it's very hard to cover the entire roof with solar because of that need for the, you know, or there's a, a gable in the middle of the roof. And so how do we maybe let them put it on the ground or how do they work with their neighbor? Can they share or can it go over planning lines? All those details are things that the city can work on uh, to make differences at the smaller scale. Enormous and it's going to re- frankly require a focus that Missoula, Bozeman and Helena haven't done yet. And that's a reflection on me. I didn't, you know, we didn't make it the height of priority issue that it has to be going forward. And that's changing to the credit of the current commissioners. Do you think that most residents in Bozeman know about the climate plan? <laughs> um, I hope that they know that there is one and the city's doing it. But I, I think that's you know back to the, the desire to get out and talk more with people. I'm not sure they know about the climate plan in water, but, you know, the, the Western joke, right? Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. You know, that I'm not sure people know that we have, it's got a very government name, Integrated Water Resource Plan, but that's vital. The community plan, which determines the density of areas, zoning, where roads go, things like that. I think they all know they exist, but they unfortunately usually learn about them when your na- when their neighbor decides uh, to do something. We, we had a... Um, a development at the corner of Black and Olive uh, a couple of years ago that was exceedingly uh, controversial to some of the residents nearby. Uh, and they started a movement called Save Bozeman. And it was an area that had been zoned downtown since the 1950s. And so for two generations, it had been zoned to allow 60 to 70 feet high. And, and the city wasn't growing or growing enough. But finally, it came that there was enough pressure to build something there of that height. And even though it had been on the books for that long, uh, the, I think the neighbors had assumed that whatever is around me is going what, is what's going to stay around me. And they were pretty upset. And the building, when my brother from Columbus visits, he laughs. He says, so this is what you spent a year of your life on. Uh, to, to, and the building did get better through the process. But it, change is a surprise. But you know, when I bought a house, I have to admit, before I was on the planning board, I didn't look into whether we lived in R1 R2, R3. I know the city has zones, but it did, you know, long answer to your question. It didn't occur to me to, even though I'm public oriented, to look at that. So why would our neighbors and how do we reach out to them? Is it through neighborhood coalitions and visiting with them? Is it uh, just pushing information to people? It's still their decision. They may just say, you know, my kid's sick. I'm not going to look at this, but how do we do that and then build trust so that if we do make our decision, they may like, I don't agree with you, but at least I know you had some valid reasons for doing it. You know, how do we temper down some of that frustration that comes about when change happens? Because if anything that's true in Bozeman is that we've, we've always been a changing city and that's not going to change this year or 10 years from now. It's a dynamic, vibrant place, which is a lot of its attraction, but it also means there's change, which is hard for people. 
I just have a few more questions as we wind down today. One of the things I'd be interested in hearing about, Chris, is when you were juggling two jobs, how, you know, when you were both working uh, as mayor, but also working at Headwaters, how did you recharge during such a hectic schedule? And is that different today from how you recharge? No, it's the same. And that's always been the true. It actually goes back to the, um, when I was at Dartmouth, I joined the outing club. And then, as I told you, when I worked in, for Congress, I would take a time off in the odd years. And I moved here because so I could uh, hike and ski. When I, we were joking before it started that, you know, while the, the sky is gray today, to me, that means snow. And so I'm taking, you know, today's bad uh, weather for tomorrow's good weather. And I, I think for me being outside, there's not a mistake that I joined the outing club that I work for the Wilderness Society uh, that I live in Bozeman. I'm fortunate enough to pick where I live, you know, in a sense, create a job from that or find a job. But being outside in the outdoors, uh, we are blessed in the West with just a remarkable, remarkable landscape. People, incredible people that I meet uh, outside. And just it's so rejuvenative, whether in a group or by myself. And if we fast forward 10 years, any idea what you might see yourself doing and and where it might be? Well, it'll definitely be here if at all possible. I mean, I, I'd hope it was here. Um, I'm on some boards now. I'll be joining the Bozeman Actors Theater Board, which will certainly be an open, uh, mind-opening experience for me there. Uh, I haven't ever been involved in an acting troupe starting in January, doing some work with the Passenger Rail Association. With trying to, uh, that's all on volunteer. So hopefully on some boards, but hopefully also um, at the community co-op, the food co-op, uh, working to the food bank, basically. Or volunteering at the library or somewhere else to give back, like I talked about before, through I've stayed in Rotary, even though I'm not in office anymore, to, because they do a number of remarkable programs. Hopefully, you'll find me, as my parents suggested, and the next generation after me will do, and that is giving back in some way, whether it's tutoring, helping somebody fix their home, or running for office. There, there are all ways that we give back to our community. Awesome. My last question is, is to hear if you have any book recommendations for our listeners. Well, you asked for this, and I, I picked some classics I commit, and I tried to think of the, the idea of change or challenges. And so one was a book that I'm reading now. I'm taking a massive online course by Eric Foner, who's a Columbia professor who's an expert on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so he, he won the Pulitzer for a book called The Fiery Trial, and it really shows how Lincoln changed his mind over time about slavery and where he started and where he ended up. And some of that was his own leadership. You know, he helped form events. But, but some of it, frankly, was just listening and realizing where the people were and what was important. And, and also, you know, Lincoln is a great example. He he lost as much as he won. He, the Lincoln-Douglas debates are famous, but we forget he lost that election. Douglas became senator, not or continued as senator. Lincoln did not unseat him. And so that that to me was just a fascinating trail of a, tri- a trial for Lincoln, um, not in a literal sense, although he was a lawyer, of how he progressed. A very intellectual approach to the issue, but also meeting a number of times uh, with uh, the abolitionists who disagreed with them and how did they agree to disagree or, or sometimes just continue to disagree with that conflict. So that's one I would definitely recommend. It's it's only about 300 pages. It won the Pulitzer. Another one is just topical. Uh, Isaac Asimov, I, Robot. Just find that Science fiction so often can be illuminating to things that we'll find in the future. I think some of our best minds and certainly most creative writers go into that field. And thank goodness, you know, we all can't write uh, textbooks for students or, or poetry, although I love, uh, you know, obviously uh, read a lot of poetry and whatnot. But iRobot and how it deals with what's coming with AI, I think, is a timeless approach to that. 
And it's just a great read. Uh, and so I just gave it to my nephew and we'll, he's in high school. We'll see what he thinks of it. Uh, and the last one I think was Graham Greene and the power and the glory. And that, and, um, so three classics and, um, and that, is, if people don't know, is a, a Graham Greene's one of my favorite writers. And that is about a priest in Mexico after Mexico's uh, disallowed religion who continues to do the rounds and give communion or confession from uh, a number of small villages, even though he's fallen. And since he's he sinned and he knows he's sinned in, in God's eyes. And how, why does he keep doing it? And, and what, what resources does he find internally? to carry on. And readers may not agree with what the priest decides, but uh, Green just has a way of getting to those issues. And I think also knowing that we're fallible doesn't mean you stop trying to do good things. Um, and he wrote it uh, also in the 50s. Just, I'm not sure the exact date, but uh, I love Graham Greene. So uh, I can't put three Graham Greene books on there. I have to show that I actually read other things. But I, that to me is just a, a book that resonates in so many ways um, because he gets up every day and does it. And some of the villagers love him, some despise him and whatnot, but he continues to try. Wonderful. Well, we will include those titles in the show notes and listeners can find the show notes at northstarunplugged.com. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, absolutely. I'm just thrilled that you asked uh, and uh, hopefully we'll go skiing and get outside and uh, re uh, rejuvenate our batteries, whether it's together or on our own or snowshoeing or whatever it is. But uh, I urge everyone to get outside, whether they're in New York or Montana, enjoy themselves uh, uh, this coming weekend in the future. Thank you again. Thank you. And for listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. And thanks for sharing this episode with a friend. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.